You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Now, listen to me carefully. I know we're moving toward the close. It's unlikely unless things change in our culture, and I pray they don't. I pray we have revival in our country. We sure need it. Or unless God calls us to another part of the world where Christians are literally dying for our faith, all right? Unless one of those two things happen, it's unlikely. I'm saying it's unlikely, and I think you'll agree with me, that any of us will die like Stephen died, or will be beheaded because of our faith in Christ, or will become martyrs. It's unlikely. Are you willing to die for your faith? In today's message from Pastor Danny, he teaches us through the book of Acts on persecution. In many areas throughout the world, there are Christians that are being persecuted and dying for their faith in Christ. As Christians, we need to be willing to die for our faith. Christ was willing to die for us. Although it's unlikely that we'll be beheaded for our faith, we do need to daily carry our cross for Christ. Pray this week for those who are being heavily persecuted. Now here's Pastor Danny with part one of today's edition of The Living Word from the book of Acts, chapter 6. To every nation for all generations I told the service last night I was didn't know for sure what I should do, whether I should read the whole text. And if it didn't work last night, I wouldn't read the whole text. I read the whole text last night. It took 10 minutes. So I'm not reading the whole text, but I'll give you the summary of what I don't read. Verse 8, chapter 6. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. The synagogue of the freedmen was a group of Jews that had gained Roman citizenship. Some, though rare, were born citizens, but many of them had to buy and pay for Roman citizenship. But despite their Roman citizenship, they retained their Jewish heritage. They still continued to practice Jewish customs, Jewish traditions, etc., and mentions where some of these were from, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. I circled Cilicia because that's important in our text, because there's a very notable freedman in the synagogue from Cilicia, particularly and specifically Tarsus, the ancient capital of Cilicia. His name is Saul of Tarsus. He says in one place, I'm from no ordinary city. It was the capital. It was notable. It's where Mark Anthony first met Cleopatra. They began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And now some of the same accusations they brought against Jesus, they bring against one of his disciples named Stephen. They stirred up the people the elders, the teachers of the law, they seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin. 
they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I've never seen an angel have descriptions of angels in the Bible. One of the things it must have meant is that his face was glowing. Chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. And I'm amazed how long they let him go on. Just reading the text last night took 10 minutes. What he does is he takes them through a summary of Jewish history starting with Abraham, then he goes to Isaac, then Jacob, then to Joseph, and then to Moses. Verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner, had two sons. He settled there, all right. He spent 40 years there. And after 40 years, God comes to him in the burning bush. And Stephen mentions that. Verse 33, the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning. I've come down to set them free. Now come, I'll send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. That is a messianic verse. It's a prophecy about the Christ. Verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it, reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them, gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and the stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. In other words, this was in your Bible. The climax of his message as some in the Sanhedrin might have been doing what some were doing last night when I read the entire text. They were yawning. They might have been dozing. We know this stuff. We know our history. But verse 51, nobody's sleeping at this point. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Nobody's sleeping now. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And he gets to the end, and someone says, boy, the preacher was sure on fire today, wasn't he? No. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. 
gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul from Cilicia, Tarsus. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. That is how the New Testament describes a Christian who dies in this life. He fell asleep. The first little bit of verse 1, chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. I actually like the way the old 1984 NIV, NIV puts it. This is the 2011. It says, and Saul was there, giving approval to his death. In my elementary years, I grew up in a place called Larkfield Circle. I don't know why they called it a circle. It was actually a square. It was divided pretty much by one block of houses on this end of the canal, and then a canal in the middle, and then another set of houses on this side of the canal. We lived on this side of the canal. A couple of doors down on around the corner were the Perrys. I never got to know the three Perry boys because his parents would not let them play with me and my friends. They had a fenced-in yard. They rarely got to go outside of their yard, and we were never invited in their yard. Vance lived on the other side of the canal. He was the spoiled brat of the neighborhood. None of us liked him. None of my friends, anyway. Lived with his grandparents. They gave him everything he wanted, and anytime we got something, he got one better. You get a mini bike, he gets a more expensive mini bike. We didn't like Van. One day, we noticed the Perry boys were hanging out with, they actually went to his house playing with all the nice stuff. So we on our side of the canal, looking across the other side of the canal at Van's house and the Perry boys and Van playing, began to taunt them. Words escalated. Next thing you know, Van reaches down and grabs a rock and throws it. Very unsportsmanlike. He wasn't much of an athlete, but he threw it at us. That was a mistake because myself and the friends with me Todd Shoemake, Brooke Shoemake, Chip Lee, Tommy McDaniel, etc., all good baseball players. Rocks began to fly. I reached down, pick up a rock, sidearmed it like a double play, second base. It beelines it just like the rock that David shot toward Goliath hits Perry, the oldest of the Perry boys, right here on the forehead. He crumbled. And blood began to just pour, pour, covered him. Pandemonium set in. I ran home. I ran home. I hid. Only a few minutes later to be called out of hiding by my mother, be led into the living room, and be confronted by a very large and angry-faced highway patrolman, the Perry's father. It's a memory I'd like to forget, but obviously it's fresh. Tim got a few stitches. Stephen was killed. Imagine that scene. I know what it's like for somebody to get hit by one rock. (laughs) They killed him. We know nothing except what the Bible says about Stephen. We know nothing about his family, but it must have been traumatic. It must have been tough for the church. He's one of the first servants, one of the first deacons of the early church. That was the text 
last time. Must have been hard for the church. But let me tell you this. He did not die in vain. He did not die in vain. Here's what Paul says. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. And then he closes it this this way, whether by life or by death. Earlier in Philippians chapter one, Paul said, the things that have happened to me, very negative things, very painful things have happened and they've served to advance the gospel. Stephen's name is interesting. It means a crown or a wreath. In athletic games in ancient times, if you won, you got a wreath, and that was your crown. It's called a Stephanos. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25, compares the crown that the believer will get to the crown that those who, who compete in athletics in this life will get. One is incorruptible. One is corruptible. I want the lightning to win. I'm sorry they lost last night. I was disappointed. I want them to win a second Stanley Cup. But it's a corruptible crown. It's a corruptible crown. When Stephen was welcomed into glory, he got the crown of life. And he did not die in vain. I want to deal with two things in the story. One is message. And second is ministry. His message is not like the message I have this morning. What I mean by that is I have spent hours and hours. I have eight pages of typed notes. You'll be glad I'm not going to give you everything in the notes. We'd be here a long time. But I've worked, I've studied, and that's my responsibility. But this is, this is not how it happened in this occasion for Stephen. This is one of those messages that Jesus told his disciples some of them might have the privilege of giving. When you stand before courts because of me, don't think beforehand what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. This is, this is one of those messages. Stephen had not studied. He didn't have notes. It's just the Holy Spirit, and he's speaking through Stephen. Spirit-filled message, but a rebuking message. Rebuking. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching. I love that part. <laughs> for rebuking. Correcting and training in righteousness. Next chapter, preach the word, Paul says to Timothy, passed on to us. Be prepared in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. This is an out of season moment for Stephen. Because you'd like to, when you rebuke in the name of the Lord, people repent. They don't always repent. Sometimes the response is not what the Lord wants and not what we want. Though sharp, though cutting, Stephen's message was loving, loving. Here's what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, he says. I stand at the door. I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, what were they rebuked for? They were lukewarm. That's another message in itself, but it tells us if you're lukewarm, You don't have any real fellowship because that's what he's talking about. I'll come in. We'll have fellowship. Instead, he said, because you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You make me nauseous. And that was a hard thing to hear. You imagine? I mean, that's a hard thing to hear. But he loved them. That's why he said it. My children have not always felt like I love them. And I am not a perfect parent. They know that. I know that. I've made mistakes. But there have been times that there was not a mistake where I was stern, I was strong, and they didn't feel any warm, fuzzy love from dad. But there were times when I was strong and I was stern because I do love them. 
Proverbs 3, my son, don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Years ago, and some of you know this story, and I'll just briefly share it. I've shared it before. Fell in our church. He was in a wheelchair. He had gotten in an auto accident before he became a part of our church. Channel 22 actually raised funds at one time and uh, bought him a van that was wheelchair accessible and all. And uh, he's going to be in a wheelchair the rest of his life. Became a part of our fellowship. He met a lady in our church. I ended up marrying them. And uh, to make a long story short, they ended up having trouble. And uh, this fella ended up seeing someone else. I had never met the person. And uh, I rebuked him for it. He didn't listen. He left the church. My wife and I are out at a restaurant one evening and we're sitting. And I look over and here's this fella. And he's sitting with this woman who I do not know, but I know it's not his wife. And they're sitting on the same side of a booth together. And so quickly, immediately, I felt led of the Lord. And my wife didn't feel led of the Lord this way for me to do it. But I didn't give her an opportunity to stop me. I got up and she knew exactly what I was doing. And I went over and I plopped down in that booth across from both of them. I said, ma'am, I know you don't know who I am. But I know Michael. Told her who I was. And I gave a fresh confrontation. And a rebuke to Michael for the audacity for him to be in this restaurant with this woman while he's still married. You know what he did? He leaned over and he looked at me, eyeball to eyeball. He said, who do you think you are, God? That was about the end of my confrontation. I softly answered and I went back to the table and had a tough time eating the meal. I don't even remember if we stayed. I can't remember if we actually stayed for the meal. Didn't seem very loving. And I didn't enjoy it. Before Michael passed away and went home to be with the Lord, and I'm convinced he's with the Lord, I went to see him in the hospital. He was very weak. He called me over to his bedside, and he, he asked me to come close, and, and he, in my ear, just he and I, he confessed, and he repented. He needed to be confronted. And it was loving, and thank God, how it ultimately turned out. But some people don't respond that way. And sometimes the instrument, or at least your perception of the instrument God's using, my favorite biblical story of God using an instrument to rebuke someone is the story of Balaam. Peter recounts it very simply. They've left the straight way, wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey. Old King James Version just says it straight out, a jackass. A beast without speech who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Because his path was a reckless one before God. Now I'm going to give you my opinion on something here. When I look at the whole story, biblically, I am convinced, even though it doesn't come out in telesis, I am convinced, I'm convinced, I believe that the guys from the synagogue of the freedmen who came to oppose Stephen, I believe Saul of Tarsus led them there. That's why you have in verse 1 of chapter 8, and Saul approved of their killing, or Saul was there giving approval to his death. He was a leader. And he led a charge of persecution against the early church. And it got bad. Chapter 9 opens this way. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I believe it was this encounter with Stephen that fueled Saul's fire in his murderous mission against Jesus' disciples. Imagine a young guy like Saul was young too. But Saul is a somebody. You got to know that he's a somebody. In Jewish circles, everybody looked up to Saul of Tarsus. It says in Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism far beyond those of my own age. 
He writes about his pedigree in terms of his accomplishments in Philippians chapter 3. He was a somebody. And to hear the likes of this guy, this servant, this deacon of the early church, Stephen, and his message, Saul, he was one of those gnashing his teeth and rushing at Stephen. And he gave approval. Kill him. And while I believe it was this encounter with Stephen that fueled Saul's fire against the church, I also am convinced it was this encounter with Stephen that God would use to change Saul of Tarsus' life forever. In Acts 26, Paul the apostle, formerly Saul of Tarsus, stands before King Herod Agrippa. He begins to share his testimony. I'll just give you the short of it. Verse 13, chapter 26, about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. It's Jesus. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a sharp object, is a sharp object used generally with cattle, other animals too, but generally with cattle. And you want the, the cattle to go which way you want them to go. And so you, you poke them with the goad. And if he doesn't respond correctly, you poke him again. And if he doesn't respond correctly, you poke him a little harder. And you just keep goading that cow until he moves the way you want him to move. I believe one of the goads, if not the main goad that God used to reach Saul of Tarsus was Stephen. His life, his message, his death, but not just his death, how he died. Fascinating verse in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me just read it. Hebrews chapter 11, one verse, verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. Isn't that a fascinating verse? You could say that about Stephen. He still speaks. Spoke to Saul of Tarsus, I don't have any, I don't have any doubt. As Saul continued his mission of persecution against the church, he could not get Stephen, I believe, out of his mind. He could see it, just like I didn't see Perry, like it was yesterday. He could see Stephen there before the Sanhedrin, and his face like the face of an angel. Said something about his life. He heard the summary of his message, the history of the Jewish people. While God's been gracious and merciful, we have a history of rebellion and stiff-neckedness and idolatry. And I have no doubt he heard his prayer many times. And he heard him cry out, don't hold this sin against them. And every time he'd remember, Holy Spirit, <clears throat> go him, stick him. And Saul would kick, kick, and resist. Mark 15, 39 makes an incredible statement about the centurion that was in charge of those at the cross of Jesus and those who died with him. And here's what it says. And the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, when he saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. It was how he died that convinced him he's the son of God. Now, listen to me carefully. I know we're moving toward the close. It's unlikely unless things change in our culture, and I pray they don't. I pray we have revival in our country. We sure need it. Or unless God calls us to another part of the world where Christians are literally dying for our faith, all right? Unless one of those two things happen, it's unlikely. I'm saying it's unlikely, and I think you'll agree with me, that any of us will die like Stephen died, or will be beheaded because of our faith in Christ, or will become martyrs. It's unlikely. And I pray that never happens to any of us. 
Jesus commissioned his followers in Acts 1 verse 8 by telling them that when they received the Holy Spirit, they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This commission extends to us right here, right now. Our faith isn't meant to be kept a secret. We need to share it with everyone, everywhere. We hope today's message on the living word has been an encouragement to you and even inspired you to tell someone you know about the Savior that you have. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Danny, visit ccfstpete.church and click on the Sermons tab. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel while you're there to get updated content each time we post it. We love connecting with our listeners, so also stop by our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Join in the conversation and we'll add some positive encouragement to your newsfeed. Before our time is up with you for the day, we'd like to ask you to consider partnering with us as we continue to share the hope of salvation with the world. Would you pray for us each time you tune in to The Living Word? Pray that we keep listening to God and following His plan for our program. Please pray too for all who will be listening next time that their ears and hearts would be open to the truth and love of their Savior. We know the power of prayer, and we appreciate you doing this for us. Thanks so much for being part of our time here today. Join Pastor Danny next time for more from the Book of Acts right here on The Living Word.